I'll have light there. Good morning. My name is Mark DeCosmaker. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, if this is your first time here, our pastor is Paul Phillips. He's on sabbatical for the next two months. Uh, and if you are a member of the congregation, I'd like to thank you for recognizing the importance of giving a sabbatical to those in ministry. And uh, just, uh, it's a wonderful thing, and we're very grateful for it. Today's passage comes from Luke 16, 19 to 31. Um, if you look in the Blue Bible, that's on page 876. I'll give you a minute to find it. And this is the passage about Lazarus and the rich man. So if you please rise for the reading of God's word. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in light manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send to him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Please be seated and take a moment to contemplate God's word. I don't know if any of you here today are teachers or parents or parents that are teachers, which I guess is kind of synonymous. But one of the things that can be frustrating is when there is a problem, and no matter how obvious the problem is, you teach the child, and no matter how to clear the lesson, no matter how carefully you've communicated it, they don't understand the problem. Or if they understand the problem, they're not prepared to change the behavior. As a good parent or as a good teacher, you oftentimes then circle around to another way to teach the same lesson. Sometimes you add consequences for noncompliance. I think in today's lesson, in this parable, that's what Jesus is doing. He's returning to the lesson that he had taught them where he said that a good tree cannot produce evil fruit. 
nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. That the tree is known by its fruit. And that the good person out of the treasure of his heart produces good fruit, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. And I think in today's lesson, he gives us an example of what that fruit might look like and what the consequences of the fruit that we bear are eternally. Where we put our trust, what we love, is reflected in the fruit of our lives. And Jesus is going to show us today God's inescapable justice, his overflowing mercy, and the sufficiency of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abounding grace and love. We thank you for bringing us through another week and gathering us together in your house so that we might offer to you our worship. We thank you this weekend for all the men and women who have fought and died to give us the freedom to worship. And we ask that at this time and in this moment that our thoughts and words would honor you. In Christ's name, amen. Today's sermon will be divided into two parts. Now, don't get excited. That doesn't mean it's going to be shorter. It just has two parts, all right? So the first part is going to be the folly of the rich man without a name, which basically is going to cover three things. That he trusted in the gifts and not the giver, that he chose to ignore the certainty of God's judgment, and that he denied the sufficiency of God's word for salvation and judgment. And then we're going to talk about the faith of Lazarus. And the three points there will be that his trust was in the giver, that he chose to rest in the certainty of God's eternal blessings, and that he chose to rely on the sufficiency of God's word to sustain him in times of suffering. So let's begin by looking at the folly of the rich man with no name. Now here we have a man that had great wealth, and he used that wealth to live a lavish lifestyle, feasting every day and dressing in expensive clothes. His wealth made him self-indulgent, and it created a callous, self-justifying negligence of the needs for others. So that when we see poor Lazarus literally laid on his doorstep, he does nothing. We are not giving any indication that the rich man does anything to relieve the suffering of Lazarus. What we are told is that Lazarus dies and goes to heaven, and the rich man dies and goes to hell. So what was the folly of the rich man? Is it that he didn't care for the poor? I don't think that was his folly. I think that was a symptom of his folly. I think that was the evil fruit that was born from the condition of his heart. His folly was that his trust was not in God, but in the gifts he had received from God. He trusted in his wealth. He trusted in his standing as a child of Abraham. He made the blessings that he received to God into the idols on which he built his life. He used them to replace God. 
his trust was in those things and not in God. And because of that, his life bore spoiled fruit. And as a result, upon his death, he received God's righteous judgment. As we read through the story, does it, do we find that when he finds himself under God's righteous punishment, does it generate contrition or repentance? It doesn't. The suffering of hell does nothing to dull his sense of self-importance. Because if we look at verse 23, it says, In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in, cool, in water and cool my tongue, for I anguish in this flame. Now, everybody can sense the depth of the irony there. That he wants... Lazarus to leave heaven to travel into hell to ease his suffering when on earth he wouldn't lift a finger to help Lazarus who was literally on his porch. So why does he feel that he can plead his case to Abraham? It's because he still clings to his self-identity as a child of Abraham. He clings to that status and to the promises that were made through Abraham. And he thinks that gives him the right to exert control over Lazarus. But those promises were not for those just circumcised in the flesh. They were to those who were circumcised in the heart. And the fruit that he bore in life proves that that was not him. Abraham's response affirms that he was a physical child of the circumcision but also demonstrates the reason why the rich man finds himself consigned to an eternity in hell. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now on the first reading or a casual reading, that response can seem a little confusing. So let me start by saying, I don't think that that response gives any support to those who would interpret to say that you can earn your way into heaven through suffering, or that if you receive good things, that implies that you're going to go to hell. Um, the place that we will spend eternity is determined by our position in Christ. All salvation before the cross is relying on the promise of the cross, and all salvation after the cross is reliant on the reality of the cross. So then, what does it mean when he says that? I believe he's speaking to the real reality of how God works in this world. Joseph was right when he told the brothers who had sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Actions oftentimes aren't good or bad. If you're a gardener and it rained today, you thought that was a wonderful thing. If you were a picnicker, not so good. You know, so in this time, in this world, that's how we judge things. What do we think it is? How do we think it impacts us? But it's only in the light of God's eternal plan that we can judge if, if a thing is truly good or bad, a blessing or a curse. Take the blessing of manna in the wilderness. Literally, life-giving bread falling like dew from heaven. 
Now, we think of that as just an absolute blessing, and we can't think or imagine how there could be a judgment or a curse associated with that. But if you read the Bible, there was. God tells Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. It was a blessing, but it also a test. And as we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we see that the children of Israel chose to fail over and over again. And though God is a long-suffering and patient God, in the end, there was punishment for disobedience. In fact, of all the adults that he delivered out of slavery in Egypt, only two were allowed to enter into the promised land. So what Abraham is saying to the rich man is that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. And he's saying that the good things that you received were opportunities for you to bear good fruit. And the reason you're now in anguish is because of your disobedience, which shows that you were never circumcised of the heart, but only of the flesh. Because the treasure of your heart was not God. And so the fruit that you bore in this lifetime was a testimony against you. Now, there's no rebuttal by the rich man, but he does seek again to impose on Lazarus. And he says to Abraham, then I beg you, Father, to send to him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, be war- they may be warned, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, Abraham's response is that they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, the term Moses in the process, prophets is another way of saying God's word, scripture, because Moses is synonymous with the law, so it's the law and the prophets. And Moses is saying the power of salvation, the truth of salvation, the way of salvation is in God's word. But the rich man denies that truth and requires a miracle, saying if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, in this part of this this parable, I, I don't think we're seeing the compassion of a person in hell for people on earth. I don't think the rich man really cares about his brothers. What he's leveling is an accusation against God. What he's saying is, if you send my brothers a miracle, they'll repent. Because that means if you had sent me a miracle, I would have repented. Because the reason I'm in hell isn't because of what I did. It's because you didn't do your job and you didn't give me the right amount of evidence or a miracle so that I would repent. But miracles do not lead to repentance. They lead to the desire for more miracles. When Jesus healed people, what did we see? People following to be miraculously healed. When he fed thousands, what did we see? Thousands following to be miraculously fed. Miracles are not the mechanisms of salvation. They are a signpost, 
meant to point to the means of salvation. They point to Christ and the work of Christ that is testified to in God's word. So why didn't the rich man want to trust in God's word? Now, at that time, if you had wealth and you were a Jew, it's almost inconceivable you wouldn't have been involved with the synagogue. So this is a man who probably sat week after week under God's word. And he heard God's word and he ignored it. So he knew that God's words judged him and the bitter fruit that his life had borne. Because it's a recurring theme throughout scripture that when God blesses you with wealth, you're a steward of that wealth. And you are called to use a portion of it to care for the poor and needy. In fact, when the nation of Israel, at the end of the 40 years of wandering, were encamped on the banks of the River Jordan, God goes to Moses and says, I want you to read the law to the people. I want you to remind them of my faithfulness and their obligations under the law. In fact, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It is the second reading of the law. And this passage that I'm about to read is a specific command that was included in that reading. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. So he's saying, before I make you wealthy, before I put you in a land of milk and honey and give you plenty, I want you to remember that there are obligations. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against the poor, but you shall open your hand to him and lend sufficient for his needs, whatever it may be. Take care lest an unworthy thought come into your heart and you give him nothing. And he cries out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because this the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hands to your brother, to the needy and the poor. See, God didn't suggest that we care for the poor. God commanded that we care for the poor. God said that those that he blessed financially should take that blessing and use it to bless those in need. And not only that, that it should be done with a joyous heart. Yet when his brother in the form of poor Lazarus was laid at his step, his heart was hard and his fist was closed. Proverbs says that whatever, whoever oppresses a poor man shows contempt for his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors God. How we treat the poor and needy is a direct reflection of how we honor God. A tree is known by its fruit, and the rich man knew that God's word judged him, and it judged him rightly. Because if you don't love your neighbor... You don't love God. God's word is sufficient for salvation and to judge the unrighteous. In the folly of the rich man, Jesus shows us that if we put our faith, if we put our trust in money or church membership or anything other than God, 
we are lost. And he issues an urgent call to self-examination and repentance. And although that is leveled at the Pharisees, it also applies to the church. Because like the rich man, we do not know when we will be called to give account. So let's look at the faith of Lazarus. What do we know about the life of Lazarus? We only really see the end. We see a man in suffering, a man who is meek and lowly, a man who is not just poor, but so poor that the only means to be fed was to beg for the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. We see a man under bodily affliction, and he appears to have died alone and abandoned. But on his death, angels lifted him up and carried to the bosom of Abraham into heaven. Now, I want you to remember the case of the blind man from birth when Jesus' disciples asked him who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And the reason is because at that time, many of the people who would have intersected with Lazarus would have looked on his suffering and his death as a punishment for God, from God, they would have connected his physical condition with his spiritual condition. So they would have said, that is the righteous judgment of God on that man. But the tree is known by its fruit. And just as we know the heart of the rich man by his fruit, we know the heart of Lazarus by the good fruit that he bore. Now, you might have read it and say, but where is the good fruit in Lazarus' life? I think we see it in his response to suffering. If you've read the book of Job, then you know what we're talking about. We're talking about a man who has nothing now, no money, no health, no security, and he chooses to trust and rest upon God's promises. This is faith. It is trust in things not seen. Or in the, evident, in the case of Job or Lazarus, in spite of the evidence in front of you. The proof of his faith is in, in his eternal destination. The fact that he is gathered up to heaven. Lazarus believed that God's eternal blessings on his children were certain. For Lazarus, reliance on God's promises and faithfulness were not related to what he received in this world, but to the trustworthiness of God. This is the opposite side of the coin for the rich man. The rich man received what people would have thought of as good things in this life, but they turned out to be testimonies against him. So they were actually bad things. Lazarus received what appeared to be bad things, but because of his faithfulness, he went to an eternal blessing, and so they clearly turned out to be good things. God can use suffering as a means to give his children a blessing. Remember the example of the Apostle Paul, who, when afflicted with a thorn in the flesh, prayed to God not once, not twice, but three times that it would be removed. But that's not what God did. God didn't ease his suffering. 
because God didn't want to give Paul what he asked for. He wanted to give the Apostle Paul what he needed, which is a constant, ongoing reminder of the sufficiency of God's grace. God told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And because Paul believed God, he was able to go to the church in Corinth, a church under persecution, and say to that church and the church in all ages, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Lazarus is proof that it's not miracles, signs, or wonders, but God's grace, which is the foundation of our faith and the rock of our hope. We rest in the promises that God has given us in his word. Now, I want to leave you with this, last, this thought. In all the parables told by Jesus, Lazarus is the only character who is actually called by a proper name. And I think this is because <laughs> in the person of Lazarus, God is reminding us that we are his children and he knows our name. Lazarus represents God's children in times of suffering, pain, and loss. He shows us that we are never alone. God is not just a witness to our pain and suffering, but he is our ever-present help. He is active. He gives us his grace in our seasons of suffering. And finally, no matter how it feels, our pain and suffering will eventually pass. And a time is coming when he will wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, or pain. And as you leave today, I want you to remember that when your season of pain or suffering comes, that God is not just a refuge. He's your refuge. He's not just strength. He's your strength. And he is a very present help in your time of trouble. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant love. We thank you for the power of Christ in salvation. And we ask if there are any of those here today who have not experienced that love, that we pray for their salvation and that you would call them to you. And for your children, that we would trust in you and all your promises in times of plenty and in times of want until we are united with you forever and ever in glory. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.